Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another Just Me, Just You solo deep dive episode. I'm really glad that you're here. Very few topics spike our anxiety and our collective judgment like the topic of infidelity. If you are someone who grew up in a family system where one of your big people cheated, you felt the massive ripple effects in your own life. Perhaps you were asked to carry a secret. Perhaps you felt caught in the middle Perhaps you felt helpless while the people you depended on were swimming in a sea of strong emotions like sadness and anger. If you've dealt with infidelity in a prior relationship, you very likely have scars. You've got either the guilt that lingers with you when you know that your choices caused pain, or you've got the sadness that can continue to echo years later when you've been cheated on. If you've been the affair partner, i.e. the other woman, the other man, the other person, as we tend to refer to that role, then you have a set of perspectives and stories that are informed by your experience, likely some blend of regret, sadness, confusion. Even if your life has never, ever been touched firsthand by infidelity, you still may carry some fear right, about like, what if this happens to me in the future? And if your current intimate relationship has been impacted by infidelity, then you certainly know firsthand how raw, how confusing, how incredibly upsetting infidelity is. Today, we're going to talk about infidelity because on Reimagining Love, we are unafraid of the difficult topics. We turn towards the hard stuff, even if it makes our heart race a little bit. I hope that you tuned in to last week's episode, which was a love stories episode featuring Christy Bourne and Rainier Wild. They shared their story of infidelity and healing, and there's just so much there to learn from. If you haven't listened yet, I hope you will. Infidelity is a huge topic. It's far more than we can cover 
in a single episode. So we are going to revisit the topic in future episodes. But in the wake of such an intense episode last week, I really wanted to make sure that listeners are feeling well-resourced. I'm especially thinking about those whose relationship has just recently been rocked by infidelity, which is why today's episode is going to focus us on those very early days and weeks and months following disclosure or discovery of infidelity. So today, we're going to be exploring how you can assess whether it's possible to repair, rebuild, restore the relationship. So first, I'm going to talk a little bit about infidelity, give you sort of a lay of the land. Then I'm going to offer three relational self-awareness questions to the person who has cheated. And then I'm going to offer three relational self-awareness questions to the person who's been cheated on. And these questions are designed to help you start to get a sense of whether the necessary ingredients are there in your relationship to begin to rebuild trust and connection. And at the end of the episode, I will be telling you about a brand new course that I'm very, very excited about and really quite proud of, a course that my team and I have been working hard on and have just launched. It's a course called Can I Trust You Again? Rebuilding After Betrayal or Deceit. This course is designed to support couples who are engaging in the process of rebuilding in the wake of betrayal. And you can find out more about the course at courses.dralexandrasolomon.com. So let us start with the big picture. And here's one of the aspects of the big picture. One of the realities of loving in the digital age is that it is far easier than ever to cheat and it is far easier than ever to get caught. What this means is it is really incumbent on all of us to understand infidelity, to understand how to prevent it, how to know when we're starting to play with fire, and to know whether and when and how rebuilding is possible. So research for many years has shown us again and again that infidelity is quite common. I'm just going to share with you data from one study from a couple of years ago from a team at University of Colorado Boulder. So this team analyzed data that's from this huge data set. It's called the General Social Survey. It's a data set from over 13,000 Americans. And what this team of researchers found is that 21% of men and 13% of women reported that they had been unfaithful at some point in their lifetimes. They also found that just over half, so 54%, of the people who had cheated reported that their affair partner was someone they knew quite well, like a close friend. And then about 30% reported that the affair partner was someone that they knew somewhat well, like, for example, a neighbor or a coworker. For the rest of the people who said that they had been unfaithful, their affair partner or the person they cheated with was a casual acquaintance. I share those numbers with you to give us a context, but also for this reason. Because there is so much judgment about infidelity, so many people suffer in silence. They don't share their stories because they feel shame. And shame keeps us silent. And so shame reinforces this feeling 
that we are alone when we actually are not alone. If you are living through this, you are not alone. The data I shared is U.S.-based, but it's also worth noting that the incidence of infidelity varies around the world, but also attitudes about infidelity vary around the world. Different cultures sort of treat infidelity differently. They relate to it differently. They respond to it differently. So a little bit more data coming your way. In 2013, the Pew Research Center, who I turn to the Pew Research Center very often to kind of have a sociological, like big picture view of different relationship dynamics. A team at the Pew Research Center looked cross-culturally at attitudes about infidelity. And they found that they vary widely. So imagine a spectrum that goes from some countries are pretty permissive, pretty forgiving. They are not kind of hyper reactive and judgmental of infidelity. And then the other end of the spectrum is countries where the vast majority of people deem infidelity as morally unacceptable and are highly reactive and pretty rigid about their attitudes about infidelity. So there's that spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum of the countries that this crew studied, one end of the spectrum, the more permissive end of the spectrum is France. So France is the most permissive of all countries they looked at. In fact, just 47% of French respondents thought that extramarital affairs were morally unacceptable. And then kind of make your way up the spectrum to the U.S. In the United States, a full 84% of respondents said that extramarital affairs were morally unacceptable. And then all the way to the tippy top of the spectrum, sort of like the 90% and above, were countries like Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, and Indonesia. And those countries, like well over 90% of people said that extramarital affairs were morally unacceptable. By the way, other countries that kind of hung out near France, like in the low 60s, were countries like Germany and Spain and Italy. So that gives you kind of a, a sense of the spectrum and how big the spectrum is, right? From less than half of the population to almost 100% of the population. And the context matters. How the rest of your community views either your behavior or what happened to you, that affects your lived experience. It affects the emotions you experience. It affects how you imagine the possibilities for rebuilding. It affects the consequences for infidelity, for being unfaithful. It's worth noting that when I'm reading research, I think a lot about which questions the researchers are asking. I think about how they're wording their questions. And I think about which questions the researchers aren't asking, right? So the tools of investigation reflect and perhaps reinforce some of our collective perspectives. So this Pew study, for example, focused on the moral acceptability or unacceptability of extramarital affairs. We are not going to focus our attention there. We're going to focus our attention on the emotional pain of infidelity, the relationship repercussions of infidelity, and the possibilities for rebuilding. When we are talking about infidelity, we are talking about a violation of a relationship boundary. 
To give us a definition, let's look at how the American Psychological Association defines infidelity. They define it as the situation in which one partner in a marriage or an intimate relationship becomes sexually or emotionally involved with a person other than the partner's spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend. And that this involvement is secret, it's not disclosed, and it's not agreed to. This part's important, right? Because infidelity, therefore, is different from what we call disclosed non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy, where a couple agrees to some flexibility around the sexual boundary. Infidelity, what we're focusing on today, is non-consensual, non-monogamy. The thing we know for sure is that when infidelity is discovered or when it's disclosed, it is a relationship crisis. It divides the couple's relationship story into the time before and the time after. So the crisis of infidelity, like all crises, is a turning point. Something's going to happen in the wake of that disclosure or that discovery. There tends to be usually one of three outcomes. One, for many, many couples, infidelity signals the end of the relationship or the marriage. Two, For some couples, infidelity is swept under the rug. So the relationship continues, right? The couple, quote, stays together, but they're unhealed. The infidelity is swept under the rug. It's sort of like what I call like a white knuckle recovery. Three, for some couples, the crisis of infidelity becomes a turning point in the story of their relationship, meaning that the relationship they had or the one they thought they had ends for all intents and purposes, but they choose to build something from the wreckage. They create a 2.0 version of that relationship. And over my many, many years of being a couples therapist, I've had the privilege of sitting with couples on this journey, of walking this journey with couples. And that's where we're going to focus today, because not every couple can or should do that. But for couples who are embarking on that journey, who are considering building a 2.0 version of their relationship, they need and deserve to be well-resourced and surrounded, clear-eyed, and skilled in how they proceed. So let's move now into the questions. So I said in the beginning, I want to start with questions for the person who cheated. So I'm talking right to the person who cheated now. If you are thinking about embarking on this journey or you and your partner are already embarking on this journey of building a marriage 2.0, I want to offer you three questions. These are questions that I want to invite you and challenge you to sit with. Okay, here we go. Question number one, how will you ensure that the boundary around your relationship has been restored. So this is in part about ending the relationship with the affair partner. The vast, vast, vast majority of couples therapists would agree with this, that if you are even going to attempt to rebuild, there has got to be a clear and consistent boundary around the couple system and a clear communication to the affair partner that the relationship is over. 
And you do not need to confuse clarity and cruelty, right? So the ending does not need to be cruel, but it does need to be crystal clear. There are times when in the course of couples therapy, a couple who is rebuilding or restoring will write a letter together to the affair partner. Again, one that does not need to be cruel because both you and the affair partner have made sets of choices in this, but it needs to be clear. And sometimes the way that that goes, usually with the help of a couples therapist. So this podcast episode may very well, hopefully it will be a therapeutic podcast episode, but this podcast episode is not therapy. So hopefully if you are embarking on this journey, rebuilding with your partner, I hope that you've got a skilled, qualified couples therapist in the trenches with you. And sometimes in the process of shoring up the boundary around the couple relationship, sometimes the couple will write a letter together to the affair partner that is clear and that creates a sense of closure and clarity around the boundary. But also this question of how will you ensure that the boundary around your relationship has been restored? This question is also about your mindset and your commitment. There might be a part of you that is tempted to say, I'm going to try with my spouse. Like I'm going to try and repair this relationship. But if things get hard, I maybe possibly potentially would reach out to my affair partner. Like there may be a part of you that is holding open that idea that like, if things don't go well with our repair, if my partner won't forgive me, if we're not able to start to restore trust, then maybe I would go back and revisit something with my affair partner. So here's a spoiler alert. Things will be hard with your spouse, with your partner, likely for a while. And rebuilding requires commitment to showing up again and again and again. And you're showing up for the moments of progress and the moments of discouragement and everything in between. So if there's a part of you that says, if it gets hard here, then I'm going to sort of change course. I want you to notice that you can have compassion for that part of you that is afraid you can't be forgiven. But you can say to that part of you, uh-uh, we're not doing that. Our mindset is to return again and again and again to a 100% commitment to doing what it takes to rebuild trust here, if it's possible, right? It may not be possible, but your mindset around, I am fully invested in rebuilding. Your mindset matters. Your commitment matters. Where you're investing your energy matters. This is about certainly, this is about creating safety for your partner, right? Because you're asking your partner to begin to entertain the idea of trusting you again. So it is incumbent on you to ensure that you're doing what you can to make sure that your partner is safe with you. But it also is about you gifting yourself the experience of standing in your integrity, right? If you are somebody who's cheated, you have had the experience of watching yourself be out of integrity. You've seen yourself say one thing and do another, likely multiple times. So you deserve, you need, you get to give yourself the gift of standing in your integrity, right? Of aligning your words and your intentions and your energy with your actions. So that first question 
about how are you going to manage the boundary. It's vital for your internal healing, for your partner's internal healing, and for creating a foundation where rebuilding is possible within the relationship, like within the space between you. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, moving along. Question number two, how ready are you to be introspective? How ready are you to hold up a mirror, to look inward, to get super curious about yourself? Because to rebuild your relationship, you're going to have to look inside of yourself. Certainly, some people who cheat do so because they believe way down to the marrow of their bones that they are entitled to act any old kind of way. However, for the majority of people, certainly the ones I've worked with over the years, cheating is an acting out behavior. And it's a behavior that is driven from unconscious, unskilled, unhealed stuff that churns inside of the person who cheats. So people, by and large, very often cheat in an effort, albeit a misguided one, to deal with stuff usually from their past or from their present that they are unable or unwilling to deal with directly. This means that putting yourself on solid ground is going to require you to learn about yourself. As you begin to make connections between earlier experiences in your life, in your family of origin, for example, or in prior intimate relationships, you will need to keep in mind that these are the context of your acting out behavior. These are not excuses for your acting out behavior, right? There's a world of difference between context and excuses. So notice how differently these land. Quote, I cheated on you because my father was an alcoholic. This sounds like an excuse, right? This sounds like blaming somebody else for your choices. Contrast that with this one. Quote, I grew up in a home with a father who battled addiction to alcohol, and that meant that I felt invisible much of the time. And when you got so busy caring for your mother when she was ill, I felt really invisible. And I felt ashamed of how much I missed your attention. And I didn't know how to turn towards you. I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. I acted out. It was so wrong, and I'm so sorry. 
right? That lands differently. That sounds like humility and it sounds like taking responsibility and it sounds like putting this behavior, this acting out behavior, this infidelity, it puts it in a larger context. It does not excuse it. It contextualizes it. And that's what introspection looks like. That's what accountability looks like. That's what integration looks like. As you're doing this introspective work, you're really thinking about what is it about the story of me, the story of my life that made me vulnerable to acting out in this way? As my friend Esther Perel, who you have heard on Reimagining Love, she says, quote, when we seek the gaze of another, it isn't always our partner that we're turning away from, but the person that we ourselves have become. And it isn't so much that we're looking for another person as much as we are looking for another self, end quote. So there's a big piece for you to explore. Who were you attempting to become in this outside relationship? What part of you were you trying to access? And what kept you from bringing that part of you to your intimate relationship or your marriage? I will say that introspection can be difficult without guidance. And it's these types of questions that we work through together in the new e-course, in the Can I Trust You Again e-course. And again, more on that later. Okay, question number three. How committed are you to being emotionally available to your partner? A 2019 study that was published in the journal Stress and Health found that almost half of a sample of unmarried young adults who had been cheated on reported symptoms suggesting probable infidelity-related post-traumatic stress disorder. And these symptoms were significantly associated with depressive symptoms. I will tell you also that other studies have found this number to be closer to 70%, that a full 70% of people who've been cheated on meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. So we've got somewhere between half to 70% of people who've been cheated on go on to experience a collection of symptoms that meet the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. Why? Because infidelity is a trauma. Being cheated on is a traumatic event. Dr. Gabor Mate defines trauma like this. He says, quote, trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you as a result of what happened to you, end quote. And what happens inside of someone who's been cheated on is painful and it's confusing. So the person who's been cheated on experiences some or all of the following. Racing thoughts. So racing thoughts are about attempting to align the parallel tracks of the life they thought they were living with you and then the life that they now realize they were actually living with you, right? As pieces of the equation are coming forward, parts of the story are coming forward, the person who's been cheated on is like their mind is going round and round trying to put all of this together. Ruminative thoughts. So it's very common for someone who's been cheated on to experience flashbacks, intrusive thoughts sort of playing scenes out over and over again. It's why in the e-course, I spend a lot of time talking about how to cope with flashbacks and intrusive thoughts, and then how the person who's done harm can be an ally to the person who's been harmed, uh, how they can be an ally and support their partner through 
flashbacks, and intrusive thoughts. People who've been cheated on also experience rapidly shifting emotions. There's anger, there's sadness, there's shame, there's fear, there's jealousy, there's hurt, there's sympathy, et cetera, et cetera. It's emotionally quite taxing. And then physical symptoms. So grief, we know, is embodied. Grief lives in our bodies. It moves through our bodies. So people who've been cheated on very often experience exhaustion, difficulty sleeping, changes in appetite, restlessness, flatness, and then lots and lots of uncertainty. Who am I? Who are you? What happens next? Where do we go from here? So my question to you, person who has cheated on their partner, is how committed are you to staying calm and comforting and curious while your partner rides these waves of grief and anger and shame? Research by Dr. Sue Johnson found that the answer to this question is absolutely what differentiates couples who can rebuild from couples who cannot rebuild. The couples who are able to rebuild are the couples in which the partner who did harm stays accessible, responsive, and engaged. She even made an acronym. This is so important that Dr. Sue Johnson made an acronym called R, right? Like A-R-E. Accessible, responsive, and engaged. That's the secret ingredient. That's the key here. What does it mean to be accessible? It means your partner can reach you. In the wake of infidelity, this often means like quite literally that you are available by phone. Your partner knows where you are. It also means emotionally reachable, emotionally accessible, right? It means that your partner feels like you are present with them versus checked out and disengaged. Responsive. If your partner is feeling particularly plagued by flashbacks, can you offer comfort to them rather than retreating, rather than rolling your eyes, or rather than panicking that we're never going to get over this? That's what responsiveness is about, right? You are responsive to your partner's pain. You are responsive to your partner's upset. You aren't reactive, pushing away, debating it, trying to minimize it. And then the third one, engaged. Are you engaged? Can your partner feel that you are invested in this rebuilding process? I tell you what, if you're listening to this episode right now, that's a sign of engagement, right? That's you showing your partner, I'm engaged, I'm here, I'm listening, I'm learning, I'm doing this work. Okay, let us move along to questions for the person who was cheated on. Now I'm talking to you, the person who's been cheated on. And I want to tell you right off the bat, I started with questions for your partner, right? I started with questions for the one who cheated. Why did I do that? It's because, as I just said, the research has found that what matters most is their willingness to engage in a process of self-reflection, of accountability, and of relational care. And I wonder if perhaps that makes sense to you, like inside of your brain, but I wonder if maybe it also doesn't feel so great inside of your heart. Because the experience of being cheated on can feel like you've been robbed of your agency, right? You've been taken out of the driver's seat of your life. You have lost your sense of power or agency or control over yourself and of the world around you. And then here I am saying that it's up to your partner 
to see whether they can or will do what needs to be done to rebuild the relationship, right? That might feel unfair or like, wait a minute, they're the one that did harm. Why do they get to be the determining factor in whether or not we proceed? But it's also so, so, so important. Why? Because so often when we're talking about infidelity, people end up saying things that are very victim blaming, especially if the person who was cheated on was a woman, and especially if the person who cheated was a man, right? So in this scenario, the message explicitly or implicitly is that if you had done a better job of keeping your mate happy, they would not have cheated. This is a horrific message. It's a horrible message. It is a perversion of responsibility. So that's why I don't want you to feel like you bear the responsibility for figuring out whether or not this thing can be fixed, whether or not this thing can be rebuilt to figure out whether or not the relationship can move forward, right? I don't want you to feel like you have to grieve a certain way or cope a certain way in order for the relationship to be restored. The key here, the essential ingredient here is about whether the person who did harm, are they ready, willing, and able to be accountable and caring? Everything else flows from there. I want to be really clear that ending this relationship may very well be your best and bravest path forward. For example, certainly if your partner remains unable or unwilling to acknowledge that there even has been infidelity, if you guys can't create any kind of a shared reality, that's an enormous problem. If your partner diminishes your pain, tells you it wasn't a big deal, tells you that you're overreacting, that's an enormous problem. If your partner is unwilling to end the outside relationship or engage with you in a conversation about the kinds of boundary agreements that you both need in order to ensure safety and healing, that's an enormous problem. So not every relationship can or should be saved, quote unquote, saved or healed in the wake of infidelity. So I'm not casting a vote either way here. I'm just offering you the tools and perspectives that you need as you sit with this decision. And by the way, you may be in a place for a long time of not knowing, right? You get to be attempting to rebuild, engaging in a process without committing to a particular outcome. In fact, how could you commit to a particular outcome until and unless you engage in a process? So if your partner is showing signs of remorse and if they are taking responsibility for their behavior, then you may be considering the possibility of remaining in the relationship and you may be imagining a marriage 2.0 or a relationship 2.0. So therefore, I want to offer you three questions to sit with as you consider attempting to rebuild. So as I move through these questions, just sort of notice how you feel. Notice if you feel some defensiveness some sadness, like just notice what it's like to hear me talk you through these questions. That's all. Just asking you to pay attention to what's going on inside of you as you listen. Okay. Question number one, can you begin to view trying to rebuild as an act of courage rather than a sign of weakness? 
Let me read that one again because it's so important. Question number one is, can you begin to view trying to rebuild as an act of courage rather than a sign of weakness? One thing that I believe with all of my heart from years of doing this work is that a partner who's been cheated on and who considers the possibility of rebuilding after infidelity because their partner is showing remorse, introspection, etc. That person is brave AF. Period. End of story. However, people who've been cheated on, who then go on to attempt to rebuild rather than breaking up, they very often, instead of feeling proud of their bravery, they very often feel ashamed of themselves. And why is that? I think we've got a perfect storm here. First of all, our culture judges people who stay post-infidelity loudly and unapologetically, especially if the person who stays is a woman. And then two, we talked earlier about how trauma is about what happens inside of you after something happens to you, right? One of the things that very commonly happens inside of survivors of trauma after something has happened to them is shame. Shame is so, so common in the wake of a traumatic experience. It's really, really common for survivors of trauma to blame themselves for what happened. So shame about what happened is already in the mix. So it's like you, your system, your emotional system is already primed to feel shame, not only because this thing has happened to you, but now further because you are considering staying in the relationship of rebuilding trust in the relationship. So I just want to plant that seed and invite you to begin to consider rebuilding as courageous rather than weak. And you might need to remind yourself of that over and over and over again. But I also want your partner to remind you of that over and over again. All right, question number two. Do you have people in your corner who are going to offer you wise compassion, not idiot compassion? I want you to have people in your corner as you do the difficult work of rebuilding, but not just any people, people who can offer you empathy, not advice, people who can hold space, not tell you what to do. So the late Tibetan teacher, Chapyam Trumpa Rinpoche, coined this term. He called it idiot compassion, and he contrasted it with wise compassion. So idiot compassion sounds like this. Once a cheater, always a cheater. I knew you were doomed the day you married him. You are so much better off without her. That's what idiot compassion sounds like. Here's what wise compassion sounds like. I am so sorry that you're hurting. I'm here. I love you. Wise compassion might also sound like, want to go for a walk? Do you want to go get some ice cream? Do you want to watch a movie? Do you want to talk about it? Right. So wise compassion offers care. And wise compassion offers care that centers the hurt person's experience, right? Versus idiot compassion, which is directive, 
which is, you know, kind of right, wrong, good, bad, simple. You need and deserve wise compassion. You need to be in the driver's seat of this process, however the process looks and whatever the outcome is. You need to be able to flounder and feel and find your footing again and again and again. And you need allies who are patient and allies who let you drive. Question number three, can you try to remember that risk and trust live in a forever tension with each other? I'm going to read that one again because it's, <laughs> it's a thick one. Question number three is this. Can you try to remember that risk and trust live in a forever tension with each other? Rachel Botsman offers my favorite definition of trust. She defines trust as a confident relationship with the unknown. That's what you're trying to figure out. Can you, in this relationship, have the experience of engaging confidently with the unknown? And this will take you some time to figure out, very likely months and years, not days and weeks. And this is going to take lots and lots of little experiences of your partner as trustworthy. So much as you both might want very badly to wave a magic wand and be able to trust again, like to put this in the rearview mirror, that can't happen because trust is built in small moments. Small moments that involve you taking risks, even if those are itty-bitty little baby risks. But in order for you to feel your partner as a person of their word, you will need to make a little ask of them, or you will need to surrender a little bit of control to them, or you will need to allow a little bit of space between you and them so that your partner can step into that space, so that your partner can give you the experience of them as worthy of your trust. And you will need to take little baby itty bitty risks, even while a part of you wants very much to remain hypervigilant 24-7, right? There may be a part of you that believes that the only way to be safe in this relationship is total hypervigilance all the time. So you do not have to surrender or risk all at once. These are little bitty baby steps and trust and risk are a two-way street. They live in forever tension. As your partner demonstrates trustworthy behavior, it will be easier for you to take risks. And as you take risks, your partner will be able to feel how good it is to feel trusted by you, right? Back and forth, back and forth, a dance that you will refine over time. As I said in the beginning, infidelity is a crisis. It puts couples at a fork in the road, needing to figure out whether to end the relationship or to begin a journey of rebuilding. And today we sat together at that fork in the road. I gave questions to the person who cheated that they can ask themselves. And I gave questions to the person who's been cheated on for them to ask themselves. If you would like to more deeply explore how trust rebuilds, and if you want to have some support, some tools, and some insights on that journey, I have a new tool for you. 
My new e-course is called, Can I Trust You Again? Rebuilding After Betrayal or Deceit. So this is a five-module, self-paced e-course. It's based on research and clinical wisdom, along with my many, many years of experience working with couples who are attempting to rebuild after betrayal, and my many, many years of training marriage and family therapy graduate students to work with couples when there has been infidelity. So you can take this course alone, or you can take it with your partner. Though, if you and your partner are currently working to rebuild and repair after a breach of trust, I highly recommend working through the modules together at your own pace. When you enroll in this course, it is yours indefinitely. You get to keep it and you get to listen and pause and listen and pause for as long as you want. After completing the lessons and activities in this course, you will be better able to understand yourself and your partner, and you will have taken the necessary steps to begin healing the pain and reimagining your relationship in light of this crisis. This course will set you on a path forward, whether you continue as a couple or whether you have a conscious uncoupling. And if you're currently single, you will have the tools you need to lay a foundation of trust in your next relationship. To learn more and enroll, head to www.courses.dralexandrasolomon.com. We have also included this link in the show notes. Infidelity is an immensely complicated topic, one that challenges our hearts and our minds. Perhaps paradoxically, in talking courageously and curiously about something we don't want to have happen or that we wish very much had not happened, it can help us get clearer on what we do want and what we do need in order to feel happy and safe and whole and connected in our intimate relationships. Thank you so much for joining me today on Reimagining Love. Be well. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love. 